Our family of listeners is growing every week. Thanks for listening live and through all our digital broadcasting channels. Spread the word to your friends to join our weekly conversation. It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions, our website, ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Aesop once said, destroy the seed of evil or it will grow up to your ruin. Good evening, everyone. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. And I'm Jonathan, and that different perspective has its basis in three things. Godly principles, family values, honest dialogue, always done in a politically free zone. Thanks for joining us this evening. This is a call-in format. We are caller-friendly. So, Jonathan, let's get started. What's the subject for tonight? It's really not a happy subject, is it? Well, Rick, Rick, (laughs) it is not. And our question is, why do some think God is a monster? Great. (laughs) And our theme text is found in Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, so again the question, why do some think God is a monster? So, folks, what would you think of a powerful leader who sanctions rape pillaging, the destruction of thousands of lives for the wrongdoings of one, racism, and genocide. Now, no matter who we are, if we have a conscience in any way tuned to the sanctity of human life, we would have to label them a monster, a maniacal, psychopathic egotist. Sadly, there are many who read certain parts of the Bible and handily conclude that the God of the Bible, the creator of all things, is such a being. They call him out for the horrible and harsh things written in the Old Testament and boldly claim that a God who presides over those things is no God at all. He is instead a monster. All right, now look. There are terrible things written in the Old Testament. But the question is, do they point to a heartless dictator or is there another explanation? This is a hard Hard question, Jonathan. It is, because when you read the graphic details of the Old Testament, Rick, it's, it's tough. It is. It's harsh, and, and, it's, and frankly, it's, it's hideous in, in a lot of places. And we're going to get to a point of going through some of those things uh, during the program tonight. But one of the reasons we're doing this program at this point is on our Facebook page, and you can certainly go to our, Facebook, our Christian Questions Facebook page. You, as a matter of fact, you should like us on Facebook while you're at it. Even if you don't like us, like us on Facebook. You know, <laughs> There have been several debates back and forth on the Facebook page with many people over several months over the issue of, you know, is God a monster? And we have the atheistic individuals that, that come on in and give their perspective. And then we have the Christians that respond. And typically, Jonathan, it ends up degrading to emotional name-calling and things like that. Oh, that's not good. No, it really isn't. It really isn't. So what we thought we would do is say, okay, look, let's, let's put that subject on the table 
on the podcast. Let's talk about it and because there's really nothing to be afraid of. But it is a very difficult, difficult, very emotional subject and as such is going to require quite some explanation. So with those emotions in mind, let's get started with this by going to a soundbite from someone who sees it exactly opposite the way we do. This is from uh, a, a YouTube video, and there was, a, I think it was a three-part series, B- Biblical Evidence Proving That God Is Evil. Now, I don't even like the title because I don't agree with the title, but you want to, I want to hear that person's explanation from his own lips. So let's listen to this first sort of introduction to the subject. To begin, ask anyone you know to make a list of the most evil acts they can think of. Chances are the resulting list will include all or most of the following. Murder and genocide, animal and human sacrifice, torture, child abuse, animal abuse, theft, slavery, pedophilia, rape, incest, cannibalism, betrayal, and lying. Now, if any individual were to deliberately condone or commit even just one or two of these acts, we would likely consider him to be a vile, evil person, wouldn't we? So how would we regard someone who condoned or committed every single one of them? Well, that's exactly what the God of the Bible has done. Okay, no it isn't. <laughs> I can't, can't just let it go. Um, but that's a perspective. And that's a very real perspective that many, many, many people hold. And, you know, Jonathan, it's not hard to get that perspective. Oh, it's true. If you want to selectively read through some of the Old Testament passages, you can read those and say, really? No, it can't be, but it is. So you say, well, how do you, how do you, how do you deal with this? So, so first of all, let's, let, let's set our own personal context here. We, here at Christian Questions, specifically you and I, right. believe unequivocally that God is not in any way, shape, or form, a monster. On the contrary, we believe him to be the universal model of benevolence, justice, and wisdom. Great, it's easy to say that. And love. And love. We'll throw that right in there. How do you prove it? And, and I think that we can lay a foundation of proof, and that's what we want to do. That's our objective tonight, is to uh, lay down some proof on the matter. But first, Jonathan, I want to go through a direct quote from one of our Facebook contributors who was contrary to, to, to our perspective and held the perspective of the, the guy with the sound bites just a moment ago. Uh, it's a very short, short quote, but there's a very specific point that we want to draw from this particular quote. So why don't, why don't you just read that quote for us? And he said, the Bible contains 31,102 verses where God condones orders or carries out acts of violence, including on innocent children, that alone is too high a price to any moral person. So I read that because I read through the Facebook comments and the debates going back and forth, and I, um, I thought, the Bible has 31,000 verses that say that? And I'm thinking, that can't be right. I just, it, I, it can't be right. Interesting thing. Sometimes when you read a comment from somebody, you accept it at face value because it's written there. Right. And you figure, well, they must have looked into it. Well, I think this individual must have looked into it, but, but, and it took about, I don't know, 30 seconds to actually disprove the statement. All of at least 30 seconds, maybe 35. 
Okay. All I did was type in how many verses are in the Bible, and up popped Wikipedia, and I clicked on Wikipedia, and it tells you how many verses are in the Old Testament, how many are in the New Testament, but then it says the total number of verses in the Bible is what? 31,102 verses. All right. Now, how many did he say condoned and, 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 and explained evil? 31,102 verses. So it can't, what he said was unequivocally wrong. You, know, you, can, you can make the argument, the verse that says God is love, the verse that says Jesus wept, well, there's two already, okay? <laughs> two of the shortest biblical verses. So obviously, that was a wrong statement. Now, whether that simple misrepresentation was intentional or an oversight, the lesson that we can draw from it is really simple. And that is, find and follow the truth of the matter. It's too easy to just listen to what someone says and nod your head along with them. Yeah, what he said. Why don't we dig beyond what is said and go into what is written and try to find out the why of what is written? So we're going to cover some of those horrible verses in the, in the scriptures, but folks, I'm going to tell you right here and right now, we're not going to get into them right away. And the reason we're not going to get into them right away is because we want to build a foundation to work with. Because unless you have a foundation, you can't build a structure of reason. And we're going to take our time because, Jonathan, there's a lot of points in that foundation. The greatest challenge of this podcast tonight will be communicating what we believe to be provable truth to those who, in most cases, have already written us off as fools. And make no mistake, there's many comments uh, you know, that have gone through the Facebook page, and I've seen them elsewhere, and I've had them written to me about how foolish and stupid we are to believe in that, that God is love when all of these things happened. The provable truth that we will lay out is detailed, it's lengthy, and it requires not just your time, but your focused attention as well. And Jonathan, before we get into that, this, this is where we end up losing people. But go ahead, you were going to... Yeah, we welcome all comments or questions, even if you disagree with us. Give us a call. We're live, 866-985-4ALL. That's 866-985-4255. All right, and if you want to uh, make a comment, if you're listening uh, through Mixler, you can certainly comment on the chat board, and we'll get those comments in. Or you can send a comment through your Christian Questions app, or go to the website, ChristianQuestions.com, and send us an email. And any of those comments will try to filter through uh, the, the program and so forth. So here's where we lose our, we're going to lose a lot of people. Because we're saying, okay, it's going to take, they're going to take all this time and do all this explaining, and we're going to fall asleep. Well, yeah, you might. And I say, too bad for you. Because if you fall asleep, what you're doing is you're, 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 you're ignoring the proof. See, what we're going to do is going to sound like a filibuster in, in Congress. You know, when they have a filibuster, somebody gets up and talks for 17 hours. <laughs> you know, and he's just wasting time. And to those who want us to be fools, they will view it that way. That's fine. I can't change that. But for those who want to use reason, who want to be fair, this is the foundation that's necessary to understand the what and the why and the who and the how of God. And when you understand those things, then you can put all of those hideous things in context and suddenly it's a completely different story. So if you want to follow along, we welcome you to do that. If you want to challenge us as we go through it, we welcome you to do that as well. So Jonathan, there's several bullet points we're going to go through 
during this program. Let's just go through them relatively quickly right here and right now. God is our creator. He is not like us or one of us. He is above us, and by his grace we have life. All right, so the first point that we are building our foundation on is God is our creator, and therefore he is above us. He's not like us. He's better than us. That's the first point. God has a plan. He is not impetuous or egotistical. He is wise, just, and loving. Too often, we try to create God in our image. That's the way Greek mythology did it. Greek mythology created gods in the image of man. The image of God, though, is different. It, it, and, and the image of God is a, is a thoughtful, planned-out being who has an eternal plan. He's not impetuous. He's not egotistical. He's wise, just, and loving. What's next? God believes in free choice. His highest creations all have it, and free choice is a tool of righteousness. This is huge. You have to understand the power of the point that God actually believes in free choice and allows free choice to, to be free. What's next? God is moral. His morality is eternal, and he has used the human experience to teach it to us. So we believe God is inherently moral to a higher standard than we are, a higher standard, and he is in the process of teaching us that eternal morality right here, right now, through all of these awful things that we're going to be discussing tonight. What else? God uses evil. Ooh. He is not evil, nor does he fall prey to it. For God, evil is a method to accomplish his plan. Now, for those who want us to be foolish, they say, aha, so you're saying that God uses evil to accomplish his, his end results. And the answer is, yeah, that's exactly what we believe. But don't be afraid to put it in context. You're going to have to stay with us to see how he uses evil and how he doesn't use evil. What's next? God is above evil. His very character cannot violate the pure righteousness that he created. So God can use evil as a tool, but his very character rises far above falling prey to evil. And what's next? God's plan for humanity includes the destruction of evil from our world. He told us this in the Bible. All right, so we go from he's our creator, he has a plan, he believes in free choice, he is moral, he uses evil, he is above evil, and his plan for humanity is going to destroy evil. That's what we think of God. And we want to go through that point by point and lay that as a foundation as we get into some of these difficult, difficult things. So to understand the shocking and almost unreadable accounts in the Bible, there's some things we first need to know. And I'm going to say that sentence again and again throughout this program. To understand the shocking and almost unreadable accounts in the Bible, we first need to know the first point. God is our creator. He is not like us or one of us. He is above us, and by his grace we have life. So, Jonathan, Genesis 127. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. Well, Rick, what it means to be made in his image, I thought of three simple things. We can reason, we can create, and we have free choice. And those are some of the very points that we put in place to describe God. 
And God gave us those things. And that is a powerful blessing and privilege. But misused, those things end up being, uh, bringing us to a very, very, very bad place. And we'll get into that. But, but Jonathan, again, we're going to take time to lay out the reasoning behind God. And for those who think that, oh, you're just wasting time because you don't want to deal with the issue, my response to you is, look, we have 6,000 years of written history in the Bible. Surely you can take 45 minutes and listen to a foundation of why God does what he does, how he works, how he thinks, and what his end end reasons are. If you want to try to convict somebody of a crime, of being evil, don't you think you should know the motive? Let's see what God's motives are. That's what we're going to do uh, this evening to get started. So, um, again, (laughs) we're going to attempt to talk to those who would accuse us, right? And and for those who who would accuse God, not us, but God, we say, you, you accusers, use God's word. uh, And when you think about it, use God's word. Now, that's a being you don't believe in and a book that you think is foolishness. So you're using a being you don't believe in and a book that you think is foolishness as a sword with which to, to, to stab God and slay him. Why not be reasonable? Reason requires you, the accuser of God, to learn how that sword is supposed to be used, how God intended it to be used. And that's one of the basic foundations. If you want to be accusatory of God, Okay, that's your prerogative. But don't forget to give the Word of God the ability to present itself and to represent itself in a way that is different than you might think. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Tonight's episode is Why Do Some Think God is a Monster? Coming up. So how do we know that God was even originally on our side. That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Tonight's episode is Why Do Some Think God is a monster. We're live Monday evening from 8 to 10 Eastern. That means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-FOR-ALL. Or you can message us on your app. Sign up for CQ Rewind. Hit the newsletter sign up tab and register for our insider CQ Rewind outline and our insider weekly material. And I'll tell you, something like that is valuable, especially with a program like this, because there's going to be a lot of details we go through in laying a foundation to try to understand God. Because if you want to say God is inherently evil, the question is, okay, why would he be that way? What is his motive? What drives God if he's inherently evil? Let's discuss it. Let's lay a foundation. So for someone who wants to put God on trial for what they think he did, they need to find a motive. And here's the thing, Jonathan, in terms of looking for a motive, uh for a lot of those folks who may listen to this program, we probably will not give them an emotionally satisfying answer. And the, Why emotionally? Well, because an emotionally satisfying answer says, okay, I can accept that. 
it makes me feel better to see your reasoning. What I think will happen, unfortunately, is just going to get written off without being listened to because, because those who would accuse God are, I don't believe, are willing, and this is really a challenge, are willing to accept a foundation for what God really is according to Scripture. Because if you accept that foundation, then you say, wait a minute, there's a contradiction here. What do I do with it? And Rick, the ironic part about that is many Christians don't understand the foundation of where God is coming from. And you are so right on that because many Christians don't get all of this stuff as well as several other pieces of Scripture. So to understand the shocking and almost unreadable accounts in the Bible, we first need to know, let's go back to one of those bullet points, what is it? God has a plan. He is not impetuous or egotistical. He is wise, just, and loving. Okay, God has a plan. It's not this egotistical fling. It is planned out. Let's go back to Genesis. And, and we've talked about Genesis, the, the account, the creation account of, of Adam and Eve and sin, a million times. But it is so incredibly valuable because it gives us the potential for understanding. So let's go to Genesis 1, 28 to 31. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, and it shall be food for you, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw that what he had made, and behold, it was very good. So you notice the clear direction, the life conditions, and the lifestyle that God laid out. It's very specific. It's very clear. He says, look, I've put all things in place. Everything was there that they would need to flourish. It's like, you know, it's like you're preparing for somebody to, to, um, to come and, and visit and stay with you for a long time. And so you do all this work at preparing the house just right. And you give them all the amenities that are going to make their life work well. And you make it convenient for them to do this, that, and the other thing. And you say, welcome. Welcome to my home. And I think that's what God was saying. Welcome to my creation, Adam and Eve. This is what I have given you. You are the epitome of this earthly creation. And I have laid this out for your joy, for your life, and, and, and for your own goodness, and for your posterity. So, it's all there. Everything was there that they would need to flourish. Now, just like any plans that we lay out that are, easily, that are easy and logical, until, until somebody else decides that they have have some bright idea and they choose to alter the plan. Don't you hate that? (laughs) (laughs) You lay it out, you're careful, you're consistent, you're clear, but somebody else comes along who's in the organization and lays out a different road. And now you have a contradiction in front of you. Now what happens? Well, according to some, what happens is God turns murderous and maniacal. Okay, let's go back to biblical evidence, part one of, you know, biblical evidence that God is evil from YouTube. And this is about murder and genocide. And this particular soundbite is is focusing on the event of the Great Flood. 
Murder and genocide is the most obvious example of evil throughout the Bible, with many glaring examples, as God frequently condones or personally commits murder and genocide. The Great Flood is the example with the highest death toll. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Fundamentalists insist this was necessary because everyone had become wicked and needed to be killed. Even though, at a minimum, hundreds of thousands of innocent babies and children had to have drowned along with the adults. All this to eliminate evil from the earth, which, as we all know, failed completely, and which an all-knowing God should have known would fail completely. I don't know, Jonathan, during that soundbite, you're wagging your head no very violently. <laughs> well, that's right, because... Uh didn't look into the context uh, of what what this situation was. Look, the sons of God, the fallen angels, mated with women and created a hybrid race. And that was a, a race that could not live with humanity at the same time. It was unauthorized. And that's and, the key. That way, j just before you go further, that is such an important point, what you said. It was unauthorized. It was not a creation of God. It was not blessed of God. It did not belong in God's creation. Go ahead. But all of humanity that died in that flood, well, guess what? The, the understanding of the resurrection, they will all be brought back and have opportunity for everlasting life. So it wasn't for naught. And it wasn't, God didn't do it to destroy evil, he did it, like you said, for a very specific purpose. And yes, there were people who had some measure of innocence that would have suffered through that. Yes. Absolutely, positively. And, you know, when those folks who are uh, wanting to condemn God so much for, for taking innocent lives, I wonder how many of them are pro-choice. Just, oh. just a question. Good just, question. Don't want to get into that, but just a question. Talk about taking innocent life, okay? God believes in free choice. Now, this is not, you know, pro-choice, pro-life thing, but God believes in free choice. His highest creations all have it, and free choice is a tool of righteousness. This is critical to understand. Free choice is a tool of righteousness. Go ahead. And, Rick, to understand the shocking and almost unreadable accounts in the Bible, we first need to know this. You can't read those accounts without understanding that God believes in and allows free choice to blossom and grow. Now, it may not, you know, look, weeds blossom, okay? <laughs> <laughs> when you say something blossoms, it doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's a positive thing. Genesis 3, uh, verses, um, actually, verse, yeah, verses 1 through 5, we're going to break it up into pieces. Just verse Now, the one. serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? So Satan is now communicating with Eve. And he is another of God's mighty creations. And he was one of God's really mighty creations as Lucifer. He was in the privileged position of overseer of the garden and of mankind. Now, we're not going to get into the proof for all this. Please see our program that we did on August 15th of this year, August 15th, 2016, Who is Satan? All of the proof of that is laid out in that particular program. Satan had chosen to rebel against God and sought to be like God and draw humanity after himself. He is the one who introduced a different road. So God had the road all set up. Satan came in and said, 
Oh, no. No, 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 no. You know, it, it could be different than you think. You're listening to Christian Questions Live. Talk to us now by calling 866-985-4255 or contact us and leave us a question or leave us a message at ChristianQuestions.com. We'd love to hear from you, your comments, and especially if you, you see things differently. We, we don't bite. Um, we are very passionate about our perspective, but it's something that we truly believe. You need to know the why of why. Why does God do what he does? Why did God create mankind? He gave them this great garden, this great place, and then he let it go away? Why would he do that? Well, the first answer to why he would do that is Satan interfered. Now, could God have said, stop it? Close your mouth? Well, no, because he doesn't want to interfere with free choice, Rick. And that is so important. He allows free choice to do its thing. Sometimes it can be very good, but other times it is very, very dark. So Satan introduces a different road because he is now questioning Eve about this, the rules that God has put in place. So let's go back to Genesis 1, I'm sorry, Genesis 3, uh, verses 2 through 4. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. So right at that point, Satan is calling into question what God said. Eve gives basically the right answer. Yes, she does. He, she says, well, wait, wait, no, no, no. God said we shouldn't do that. He said that's off limits. He said that's there, but it's not for us. He said that can cause you to die. Now, I don't know if she even understood what die meant. I bet she didn't. <laughs> but she probably knew it wasn't very good. <laughs> okay? So you've got this sense of she understood that there's now a contradiction. So what does Satan say to her? The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So we see the, the response of Satan is to lie. He says, no, 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 no. God said that, but no, 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 that's not the truth. So he's got this new, logical, and alluring voice. And it rises, and it's in contradiction to the voice of God himself. And when that happens, it can easily feel like a voice of progress to bring us to further enlightenment. It's like, oh, something new that I didn't know before. Oh, this is built on top of what God said. No, it's not built on top of what God said. It contradicts what God said. But often, Jonathan, in our humanity, we look at things and we want the new thing. We want the different thing without considering the source. That's right. It's appealing to us. Right. Exactly. It, 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 see, you said it so simply. It took me half an hour. <laughs> so, so it's appealing to us. But it's not. It's not truth. Rather, it is always a voice of pride and godlessness, which always results in the flourishing of evil. Always. So free choice... God gives us choice. He gave them rules. He gave them guidelines. He gave them do's and don'ts and didn't say, um, it, it didn't force them. He didn't, he didn't put, you know, you know, like those mosquito zapper things where yeah. a mosquito flies yeah. and zzz. He didn't put one of those things around the tree. So if to they got, them. right, to, to, to zap them, to say, oh, no, 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 I told you. He allowed their 
their, their, their thinking to let them decide what to do with what God said. And you say, well, isn't that a little dangerous? Yep. But it's awesome. You can see the results. Yes, yeah. But ultimately, it is incredibly, eternally wise. So it's sometimes that something that can be dangerous in the moment. If you understand God, we can see to be eternally great wisdom. And a loving father does that for a child for a life lesson. Yes. Don't they, Rick? You know, and, and it's so important. I can, I can go into all kinds of stories about my own children and, and times that I knew that they would do wrong. And I would explain, especially my son. You know, he was, <laughs> you remember Tim when he was young. Yes, yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> you know, he, he, was, he was always into the next thing. He couldn't sit still. And there were times we knew that, okay, he's going he's gonna to screw it up. So let's give him the guidelines. Let's watch him choose. And then let's help him learn from that choice. And that's a nice, simple lesson when you're dealing with a little kid. Maybe later on we'll talk about a more serious kind of lesson along those lines. But for now, let's go back to the garden because Satan says, oh, no, 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 you're not going to die. It's a different thing. Hold everything. Life is different. He's lying, but he sounds really good. So what's Eve's reaction? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So her reaction typifies our human response. Looks good, sounds good, tastes good, but it's not good for you. You know, that's really what ends up happening. Remember, if it's not in line with God's will, which at that time was as beautiful a life as one could imagine. I mean, when you think about it, he laid out, and I'm going to say the green carpet for them, in terms of a place to live, and the, the lush, beautiful garden that they just needed to tend and to keep. If it's not in line with God's will, then whatever good we think we're getting is ultimately evil. And sometimes it takes a long time for the evil of that experience to unfold. Sometimes the evil doesn't present itself right away, but this is free choice. And remember, this is, the point is God believes in free choice. His highest creations all have it, and free choice is a tool of righteousness. So the fact that humanity has free choice means we're one of his higher creations. Go ahead. Their first reaction, Rick, was shame. Afterwards. Afterwards. They felt, oh no. This was out of harmony with God, and we see it vividly. We're naked. We feel ashamed. They, they knew without a doubt that they took the wrong road. And that was as a result of the power of the tree of life, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because now they were beginning to understand things that they were not yet opened up to them. God would have opened those things up to them in whatever time he had planned. We don't know because it never got that far. But you're right. Once they saw, once they were given some knowledge of good and evil, their very first reaction was shame. And what happens now is when we go further down that road in our society, the shame is, 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 is put aside. And the shame is demanded to not be part of the equation. And it's politically correct to not be shameful. 
and to stand up for whatever it is that you think is right because you feel it. Inherently, while that is freedom of choice, it is also freedom of disaster. And that's what we're seeing, and that's what happened to, to Adam and Eve in the garden. It was a simple thing, a simple equation, and they fell prey to it. But God let it happen. And why did he let it happen? Because he believes in free choice. And you give, uh, to me, this is not a flaw of God's. This is a great strength of God's. There's so much wisdom here. Right. He gives them the power over their own lives and says to them, okay, I'll let you do this so you can learn what happens when you act outside of my will. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Tonight's episode is, Why Do Some Think God is a Monster? Coming up, sin is now present, and a different road is now open. What does God do with this? Now that's a good question. You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Tonight's episode is Why Do Some Think God is a Monster? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 10 Eastern. That means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-FOR-ALL. Or you can message us on your app. Go to our website and become a Twitter follower to learn about upcoming episodes and new updates posted. Our website has over 500 archived programs. Go to ChristianQuestions.com. And, folks, we're dealing with a very specific subject this morning. It's a difficult subject. And there are a lot of, frankly, very gross things written in the Bible. And you read them and say, really? Come on. Do we have to read about this? And they're there for a purpose. There are many who interpret those things as, well, God's an evil monster, otherwise he wouldn't allow those things to happen, or he wouldn't command those things to happen. The answer is no. God is not an evil monster, but to be able to grasp how those things could happen within the plan of God, you need to understand God first. You need to understand the eternity of God and the bigness of God. He's our creator. God has a plan an eternal, big, righteous plan. And God also um, uh, believes in free choice. And it's so important because he allows free choice to run its course so that we can learn what happens when we choose unrighteousness. So, sin is now present. Remember, Adam and Eve sinned, and you said they, they had shame. And now this different road that Satan had introduced is now open. So what does God do with this? Well, Adam and us, for Adam and us, the full consequence of disobedience, using his free choice, the full consequence is sin and death. Genesis three seventeen to 19. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat it, all the days of your life. So it's interesting. It says because you have listened to your wife, and it's because she listened to Satan. So and you know we can't put the, the the full blame there on Eve. And he says because you have eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to, now you, the ground is going to be cursed for your sake. Now when you do something for somebody's sake, it sounds like you're doing something really good. 
Because, Jonathan, I'm going to do this for your sake. It's like, oh, thanks, Rick. <laughs> well, here God says, cursed is the ground for your sake. And you say, well, how is that good? And the answer is because it's the just consequence of disobedience. And ultimately, that is good. So what else is the just consequence of disobedience? By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So God is as good as his word. And he says, it's gonna, you're, you're going to die now. I didn't create you that way, but you've taken a different road. And so now the result is going to be something different. Now, this is a great question now, Jonathan. Does this mean the road, does this different road mean that God failed? No, of course not. What it does is it shows us that he is wise enough to be able to work with difference, work through difference, and to not alter his ultimate outcome. You say, well, what the heck are you talking about? You got to stay with us, okay? Because we've got to build the foundation. Without a foundation of understanding the plan of God, you cannot justifiably call God a monster because you're just taking something out of context and you're just taking circumstantial evidence and in a court of law, that doesn't stand. Well, Rick, so different is now in place. What does that mean? It means a new setting. It means new rules. Now, Adam was created a free man and in harmony with God and was able to live a far more privileged life than the Adam who sinned. Because once Adam sinned, he's now in the prison of sin and death. And Jonathan, when somebody goes to prison, is life different? Oh, big time. Do you have the same privileges you had when you were free? No way. Not even remotely close. And that's why should we be surprised that in this prison house of sin and death, the rules are different than they were in the garden? It's not the, the, the same free way of living. It's now more restrictive. It's more difficult. And any just society understands that those who are lawbreakers need to learn what the consequences of their actions are. Wow. This is a huge lifetime lesson for humanity, isn't it? And it's a lifetime generational lesson that touches every single human being who's ever lived. Even those children who, who, who died innocently and all of these different things that have happened, it touches them as well. So this is, this is important. So God had an ideal pattern and that pattern was laid out. Choices were made and the pattern, the ideal pattern that God laid out was not usable anymore. So God walked us down the road of our own choice. He's saying, okay, I had an ideal pattern all laid out. You chose not to use it. Now you're going to go down the path that you chose. Let's see what it looks like. Let's see what it brings to you. Let's see what it keeps from you. Let's let it unfold because you've chosen it. That's a wise father. That's a wise father. So to understand the shocking and almost unreadable accounts in the Bible, there's another thing that we first need to know, and what is that? Rick, that's God is moral. His morality is eternal, and he has used the human experience to teach it to us. Those three words are so important. God is moral. And his morality is higher than ours. It's more powerful than ours. It's eternal. And he uses the darkness of the freedom of choice, the darkness of the consequences of sin, to teach us what morality really is. 
And you say, well, how can that be possible? And you already mentioned it, Jonathan. You mentioned a resurrection. Yes, I did. So when people die in their sins and die in the misery, you say, well, what did they learn? And the answer is probably not a whole lot. But when they're resurrected, what can they learn? Ah, See, that's, a lot. That's, where they can, that's right. That's where they can learn everything. So God would now choose whom he would deal with, and he chose only those who wanted him. Again, free choice. He's not going to come to humanity after Adam and Eve have all these children and, and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and say, okay, now you all got to listen to me. He found those individuals who still sought God and said, okay, I can work with you. And he found a nation that wanted to do that. Amos chapter 3, verse 2. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So if you read just the well, first... thanks a lot. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Great. Right. Couldn't you pick them? <laughs> you only have I chosen. And you're thinking, okay, and what do we get? Punishment? <laughs> yes, when we go off the track of godliness. Why? So you can be the template for understanding what it means to be godly and to be sinful. So you can be a tool of righteousness in the long run. This is Christian Questions, your weekly live podcast to help you think about the Bible like you never have before. Talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com or call us now at 866-985-4255. And if you want to email in a comment or you want to send a comment via your app, you know, the comments or if you you're, uh, want to get involved on our chat board, please feel free to do so. We'll see if we can work those comments into the program as well. So God chose Israel, and we sort of jumped ahead with that because we're dealing with Adam, all of a sudden you're dealing with Israel, and it's like, well, how did you get there? We're going we're gonna to back up in a, in a bit. But Israel's relationship with God would show them the necessary guidelines toward godly behavior, and it would also show them the harsh reality of following God in a vile world. The vile world. That's key, Rick. Yeah. You're right, because they were being taught to rise above the vileness of the world that was in existence twirling around them. But they can't get away from it. Right, exactly. all around. They're surrounded by it. So the law and its rituals were put in place to define sin, to remind them of who their God was, and to separate them from all other peoples. So to um, understand, Israel as a nation for generations was a tool for righteousness. He blessed them, and he punished them. God did use Israel, and he commanded them to destroy whole, whole cities and, and, and whole nations. And you say, well, where's the fairness in that? We'll get to that, okay? But they were a tool for us. They were a tool for understanding uh, what righteousness truly is. So, um, hang on one second here. Okay, so to understand, let's go a little bit further. To understand the shocking and almost unreadable accounts in the Bible, what else do we need to know? God uses evil. He is not evil, nor does he fall prey to it. For God, evil is a method to accomplish his plan. Okay, now this is a really important point, because those who would like to condemn God say, Aha! We got you there, you even said it. God uses evil. And the answer is, he certainly absolutely positively does he uses evil and it becomes something that is a tool of his righteousness so as as a tool of righteousness you got to say well how does evil get used jonathan before we get into that we have a call we have julius on the line from connecticut good evening julius and welcome to christian questions 
Good evening, Rick. Thank you for taking my uh, call. Good evening to Jonathan also. Good evening. You know, uh, our Heavenly Father has been misrepresented by well-meaning people. Yes. Uh, some missionaries, I'm sure. But anyway, I have a cute quote from uh, South, South African leader Desmond Tutu. Okay. And I want to share it with you to show how, you know, well-meaning missionaries have not done so well sometimes. Uh, I'll quote it for you. It says, uh, by Mr. Tutu, says, quote, When the missionaries came to Africa, they had the Bible and we had the land. They said, let us pray. We closed our eyes. When we opened them, we had the Bible and they had the land. Yeah, not so good, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. God bless. <laughs> Thank you, Julius. We appreciate that. Take and, care. And, and, you know, Jonathan, he brings up an important point because what he's basically saying is sometimes God is misrepresented by those who mean well. That's right. And, and to go and, and, and to take what somebody else's in the name of God is not, is not something that was ever given to anybody except for Israel at very specific times for very specific reasons. God was never arbitrary with this. And again, he did use easels, e- evil. So uh, thanks, Julius, because that's important to, to realize that even people who mean well can misrepresent God. So in this next scripture, Jonathan, God is speaking to Abram before his name is changed to Abraham in a dream. And he's actually telling Abram what's going to happen to his posterity generations later. So this is Genesis 15, verses 14 to 16. But I will also judge the nation, Egypt, whom they, Israel, will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. For as you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then, in the fourth generation, they will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now this, you say, okay, so what are you talking about here? The iniquity of the Amorite and the fourth generation. This is a huge point to understand the goodness of God and how he uses evil. It says the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Amorites symboled the city-states of the land of Canaan. They were one of the several city-states of the land of Canaan. All right? And there's a powerful, powerful principle here. God sees the sin in the peoples of the earth, and God, listen to this now, God allows those sins to fester and grow without interfering, without stopping them. And you say, well, why would God do that? Because he wants sin to come to its full. Uh, and he wants it to, to, to show itself for what it really is. And so, when some of these people were at odds with the people of God, and, those, and their sin had come to their full, God then commanded destruction. And now, those who would judge God say, okay, so, the innocent of those nations are just mercilessly destroyed? Where's the fairness? Where's the justice? Where's the love in that? And that's a, that's a good question. And you know what? Sin is not fair. The world is not fair. Sin is never fair. But God had mercy in mind. Now, how the heck do you say God had mercy in mind when it says he destroys everybody? We're going to get to that in the second hour in a big, big way. Go ahead. And we can remember the resurrection. God has got eternity in control. And that's the point. His plan is eternal. It's not momentary. See, we can't think beyond our own lifetime. 
God can, because his lifetime didn't have a beginning and doesn't have an end. So he can think in terms of his lifetime, and it's easy for him to see eternity. For us, it's almost impossible. Let's go to another soundbite from Biblical Evidence that God is Evil, Okay, uh, from YouTube. Uh, and again, more things that they talk about that say, okay, see, God must be a monster. The flood example is bad enough, but there are a few more examples I find particularly cruel. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon. Instead of directly punishing Pharaoh and the Egyptians who disobeyed him, God took it out on their firstborn males, many thousands of whom were undoubtedly babies and children who would never have a chance to grow up and make their own choices. God's idea of justice was to put innocent children to death children who had done absolutely nothing wrong. How would we regard a human who did such a despicable act? Good question, I suppose. <laughs> However, you know, you, you, you're not remembering that Israel was enslaved by those people for 142 years before that, and they were killed and abused mercilessly as well. And you say, okay, so you want to zero in on the, that innocent child at that moment. And I can understand that, because an innocent child is an innocent child. But there's much more to it than that. Yeah, the firstborn, um, Jesus was the only begotten of the Father, the firstborn in creation. And his sacrifice was special. And this was a picture of that, but you have to get into a lot of depth and detail over it. And, and there's not a fairness to those, those specific individuals. So th that, that's no. true. That's true. That is true. At the moment, there's not a fairness. Again, God's eternal. But see, historically, Jonathan, this is the way that wars were fought. God or no God, you either wiped out the entire civilization, and this is historically the way wars were fought. Remember, these are people doing things who did not follow God in the Bible. They were the ones who set the tone for wiping out whole civilizations, or you made the children who were survivors your slaves. So there is an element of mercy there, and especially when you mention the resurrection, that comes into play. Historically, as that might be, there is a much bigger and better reason behind God's instructions. And Jonathan, in the second hour, we're going to really begin to get into that. So at this point, what we have is we've laid out several pieces to this puzzle in terms of understanding God all over the world. and understanding how all this stuff is supposed to be working. So, folks, for the next hour, we're going to be getting into some more of these uh, um, situations and more of what is important in relation to the plan of God and the character of God, understanding who he is, what he is, and how he works. For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. But till then, why do some think that God is a monster? We'll be back soon. Think about it. And I especially enjoy following along with a CQ Rewind document while I listen to the program. Whether it's during the show now or even when we're not on the air live, we'd love to hear your feedback or questions. Call 866-985-4ALL. That's 866-985-4ALL. And ChristianQuestions.com. Our family of listeners is growing every week. Thanks for listening live and through all our digital broadcasting channels. Spread the word to your friends to join our weekly conversation. It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions, our website, ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. 
Alexander Solzhenitsyn once said, The battle line between good and evil runs through the heart of every man. Good evening, welcome back. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. And Jonathan, we have a very uh, powerful topic on the table this evening. Even though we had a little bit of Christmas-themed music there, this is not a really Christmassy-type program. What's the subject? Well, Rick, the question is, why do some think God is a monster? And our theme text is found in Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So God seems to be, especially in the Old Testament, he seems to be a God of contradiction. But is he? And the answer is, from our perspective, absolutely not. But in order to lay and Rick, the subject was inspired from a Facebook conversation, wasn't it? Yeah, more like a Facebook debate <laughs> uh, on, on that, that crops up on our page periodically by those who don't believe in God and those who do. And going back and forth, well, your God is a monster. He, he eliminates whole societies. He commits genocide. He, 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 he sanctions rape and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and so we're dealing with that. And, and Rick, in this world and society, we, we hear the blame game going yeah. on. Yeah. When you don't understand something, it's easier to blame somebody else or something else instead of yourself having anything to do with the, the, the wrong or the error. Yeah, and you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I just got, a, just got an email uh, from, from the website. And this is a little bit sarcastic, but it fits exactly what you said about the blame game. It says, okay, God disciplines Adam and Eve and gets sued for violating their right to eat what they want. Safe spaces are now set up to keep them away from any obligation to be accountable to God. <laughs> Parenting and being respected and looked up to as a role model and footprints to walk in has been lost. Adults don't want to be responsible and trustworthy, and kids now have the right to be the one who will decide. And then it says, seriously, Satan is so clever. He got us wrapped around his finger. He has made God the bad guy. And it's so, so true. Absolutely. We look at it and say, God must be a monster because he allowed this and he allowed that and he commanded this and he commanded that. No, God is a God with a plan. As a matter of fact, let's go through the, the bullet points that we discussed in the first hour as foundation steps to know the what, the where, the why, and the how of God himself. God is our creator. He is not like us or one of us. He's above us. And by his grace, we have life. All right. He is above us, and it's because of him that we have life. So inherently, he is due our respect. God has a plan. He is not impetuous or egotistical. He is wise, just, and loving. When you think about the fact that God has a plan, you have to realize it's a plan that's built with eternity in mind. And God is a loving and just God, so the eternity in mind is not some fictitious idea of people burning and burning and burning when they do bad. That's not a godly, biblical thought. God is bigger and better than that. God believes in free choice. His highest creations all have it, and free choice is a tool of righteousness. It is absolutely a necessary tool of righteousness. And Jonathan, in the short run, free choice can be devastating. But in the long run, it provokes sound, solid, 
clear, loyal, eternal life. God is moral. His morality is eternal, and he has used the human experience to teach it to us. God's morality is bigger, and he is using our experience with sin and death and evil to teach us something bigger that we can't even fathom when we're in the middle of all this mess. And finally, God uses evil. He is not evil, nor does he fall prey to it. For God's, for God, evil is a method to accomplish his plan. God does use evil. He absolutely does use it as a tool. And he is not subject to it, but he uses it. So, so as we get through, go, go now to the next step and look at, uh, we're going to look at one of those biblical accounts that people look at and say, see, read this. This will prove to you that God is a monster. So before we read it, to understand the shocking and almost unreadable account we're about to look at, what do we first need to know? God is above evil. His very character cannot violate the pure righteousness that he created. All right. If you believe in the character of God as laid out in Scripture, what you believe in is a character that's above and impenetrable when it comes to evil. Now, remember in the last hour we were reading this prophecy given to Abram. Remember he was saying what was going to happen and... Um, talking about the slavery of, 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 of Israel and so forth and their deliverance. Yes. Well, and he said, he talked about the people coming back to their land. All right? Now, let's look at this being fulfilled. If you go to religioustolerance.org, this next account that we're going to look at in Joshua chapter 6, they frame it as one of the, quote, many acts of genocide commanded by God in modern times. We are appalled by such things. All right? They look at it and say, here, this is an act of genocide. Is it? Let's take a look. Jo uh, Joshua six twenty and 21. When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and at the sh sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So every man charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. So this was the cleansing of the land of Canaan. This was the fall of the walls of Jericho. And, you know, and you think about it for a minute, you think, well, with, with little kids in, in Sunday school, you know, the story of the walls of Jericho kind of is a fun little story, and the walls came a-tumbling down. But there's a reality to it. There's a harsh reality to it. This was war. This was all-out war between two different peoples. And God arranged for these walls of Jericho, uh, a city which was filled with evil, incidentally, those walls to come tumbling down so it could be conquered, so evil could be conquered. And they were instructed to go in, and they were supposed to wipe everyone and everything out. And you say, wow, that really is harsh. And you say, yeah, it is. It is harsh. There's no question about it. You, don't, you, you, can't, you can't undo it. You can't look at it um, through rose-colored glasses. It is a harsh reality of the way war worked back then. But God has control of eternity, and the resurrection will bring each and every one of those individuals back to life. See, it's, it's interesting that you keep coming back to that same point again and again and again. And that's important because when we said that God has a plan, that's part of the plan. So if you're going to look at the part that, that, that brings darkness and difficulty, you have to, by right, look at the other part of the plan that brings life and goodness. And if you take one and ignore the other, you are a hypocrite. 
Don't do that. Don't do that to the word of God. Don't do that to the character of God. We have no right to go down that road if we're trying to figure out who and what God is. Now, let's go to Joshua chapter 10 because it gets worse. Okay, <laughs> all right. Uh, religioustolerance.org frames this next scripture as God hardening the people's hearts so Israel could destroy them. Okay, Joshua chapter 10, verses 40 and 41. So Joshua defeated the whole land, the hill country, and the Negev, and the lowland, and the slopes, and all their kings. He left no one remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed, as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua defeated them from Kedash, Barna, to Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, and as far as Gibeon. All right, so Joshua... He's, he's just going through and defeating everyone, and he's destroying people as he goes. And you think, well, that's pretty terrible. But this is in the land of Canaan. This was a very dark and evil land. Now, were there innocent children killed in all of this? Yes, there were. Yes, there were. And are we happy about that? No. no. But this is the reality of warfare in those days. And Rick, we've talked about this early, that living in the prison house of death, yes. rules are different, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, and, and it was kill or be killed in those days. I mean, you, you had no tool, no ability to, to take those children except to make them slaves. You know, and, and, and there's the whole thing about disease and all of that stuff. So it, it was a hard, hard world. And we, living in the 21st century, we have no clue as to the harshness of the way the world was in those days. But wait, let's make it even worse, Jonathan. Let's go to Joshua 11, verses 19 to 23. There was not a town that made peace with the Israelites, except the Havites, the inhabitants of Gibbon. All were taken in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden or strengthen their hearts, so that they could come against Israel in battle, in order that they might utterly be destroyed and might receive no mercy, but be exterminated just as the Lord God commanded Moses. At that time, Joshua came and wiped out the Anakim from the hill country and from Hebron and from Debri and Anab and from all the country of Judah and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their towns. So you think about that and you say, man, it's just destruction after destruction after destruction after destruction. Now, there was one exception of a, of, of a group that did make peace with Israel. So it, was, right. it was possible. Mm -hmm. Okay, it was possible, but most decided not to. And it says, the Lord, it was the Lord's doing to harden. The word harden literally means to strengthen. In other words, he gave them the ability, he gave those people to say, yeah, we can, we can fight them, we can fight them. Now, did God make them do that, or did he take what was already in their hearts and just strengthen the resolve? See, that's the way I see the strengthening. Yeah, I, I do too, Rick. It's not planting a new thought. It's building up the thought that's already there. And the, and the end result was destruction. That's harsh. There's no question about it. That's harsh. But remember, when in the prophecy given to Abram, it said that the, um, that the, uh, uh, the, the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. And it would take up to the fourth generation for that to happen. Well, here you go. You have this iniquity complete. And so you had four generations of growing evil. You know, and just to put that in perspective, Jonathan, it's almost four generations since World War II. What kind of moral decay have we experienced in those four generations? Oh, 
Terrible. It's hard to believe. If you look at the way the family structure ruled our society back then and how mm. important that family unit was and what the family unit has become. What family unit? Right. It's, it's, it's unrecognizable. So you had this four generations of growing evil. It had come to the full, and it was ripe for destruction. And again, with destruction, there is mercy. Why? Well, what's the reason you keep bringing up over and over again? God is in control of eternity, and he's promised a resurrection right. of the dead. So the natural outgrowth of sin and evil is death. There's no question about it. And it comes earlier or it comes later, but it always comes. And the question, you, again, that they always come back to, well, how is it fair that they all perished? How is it fair? And the answer is, it's not. It simply isn't fair. But those are the rules of living in the prison house of sin and death. Nothing is fair any longer. Thanks for listening to Christian Questions Live. Call us now at 866-985-4255 or ask your questions and leave your comments at ChristianQuestions.com. All right, Jonathan, let's go back to another soundbite. Uh, this is, again, from Biblical Evidence that God is Evil, Part 1. And this is about stoning a relative for idolatry. Uh, and after that, we've got a, uh, an app comment, and then I want to get into a, a personal experience that kind of illustrates this whole thing. If your very own brother, or your son or daughter, or the wife you love, or your closest friend secretly entices you, saying, Let us go and worship other gods. Do not yield to him or listen to him. Show him no pity. Do not spare him or shield him. You must certainly put him to death. Your hand must be the first in putting him to death, and then the hands of all the people. Stone him to death, because he tried to turn you away from the Lord your God. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid and no one among you will do such an evil thing again. God ordered his followers to kill their own family members whose only crime was to suggest worshiping other gods. In the U.S. and other civilized countries, we consider freedom of religion a fundamental right, and we believe that forcing someone to follow a specific religion is evil. That makes God downright un-American. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> The thing about this, Jonathan, that's so important that this individual simply does not seem to grasp is that following another god for Israel was just like treason in this country. It was going against the very government. It was an outright defiance of the very government that delivered you from slavery. It was against the law. It wasn't a matter of freedom of religion because their religion gave them freedom and blessing. It was a matter of acting against the righteousness of God himself. And so, yeah, is, is that a harsh sentence? Yes. It is, Rick. It is. But the resurrection again will teach <laughs> the, the eternal lesson of God is God. And that's such an important point. The resurrection is al always plays very, very clearly in this all. Uh, a, a, um, a comment from the Christian Questions app, Coretta from Florida says, Anyone who is willing to reason that has ever been a parent or a caregiver to a child should understand God's position in handling the dis disobedience of Adam and Eve. Any good parent will use a child's disobedience as a tool to teach that child the right way to go. Isn't that the basic principle in God's plan for mankind? I think so. So very, very well stated. It's simple. God has a reason for allowing and then for using the, the, the devastation of the bad choice to teach hard lessons. So 
But let's go to um, just just before I get to that other story, we may have to carry that over into the next segment. We'll see. Let's here take a look now at how God put the hints in place that this resurrection you keep talking about was actually something to look forward to. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. All right. This is a veiled picture, a picture of something that would come later. God does reveal his plan if you're willing to look for it. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. A ransom for the few. For all. A ransom for just the people who believe in Jesus right now. No, everyone. To be testified in due time. That's powerful. All the human experience is a teaching tool. Evil leads to death, obedience to life, but in all cases the experiences were brought with a... Uh, we're bought with a price, and the players will all have an opportunity. That's the wisdom. That's the justice. That's the power of God. Jonathan, I want to start with a with a, a personal experience that very hard for me. This was a this is a, a relatively recent experience with a young man that I know very well, um, and have had have had a good relationship with him. Uh, he's 20 years old, and he has recently, over the last few years, done some things that are really horrible. And he's really excoriated his family. He's done just terrible things and he walked away he walked away from his family and uh, he by choice walked away and he got himself and walked into a situation that he declared was where he wanted to go but it did not work out the way he wanted and he called me for help now I was there when he completely abused those he walked away from and there was no apology there was no anything he just walked away and and left them all broken and uh, he called me for help because he had no place to go so I drove to this other city where he was. This is a true story. I sat down with him. I fed him because he was hungry and he had no place to go. And I said to him, look, I can't take you in. Not after what you've done because you haven't made it right. But here, I can help you find a place. And we, I gave him my cell phone and we made phone calls until we found a homeless shelter that he could go to. I drove him to the homeless shelter and I dropped him off and I drove away. Now, some people can look in that and say, you cruel person, because I had room, but what he had done was wrong, and there was no repentance, there was no desire to go back and make right what he had done. And so, using the principles, the godly principles of, we must experience the consequences of our actions, that's what happened in that particular circumstance. Was it easy? No. Was it right? Yes. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Tonight's episode is, Why Does Some Think God is a Monster? Coming up, so what about individuals? Did God sanction rape or abuse? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Tonight's episode is, Why Do Some Think God is a Monster? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 10 Eastern. That means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866 
985 for all or you can message us on your app. The conversation continues online at ChristianQuestions.com. Contact us there with your questions or comments. Also, interact with us on our Facebook, tweet us at CQNet Radio, and we're now on Instagram. Boy, there's a lot of ways to follow and find out what's happening. <laughs> take take a look and avail yourself of what you're, you uh, you'd like to. It, it, it's a great it's a great place to go and to be a part of. ChristianQuestions.com is where you can find all of that. Jonathan, I just want to touch back on that story, that personal story, for a little bit, because if you look at that part of the story, you can easily say you left that young man with no place to go, and the answer is yes, I did. Was that easy for me? It broke my heart. But I didn't know anything better. My love for him drove me to want him to experience the consequences of his actions. Now, this has been an ongoing experience. And there have been circumstances since where the young man uh, called me for help at, at, at another time. And he was in a situation he shouldn't have been in. And he wanted me to help him make that situation that, frankly, was not even legal better, more comfortable. And I said, no. And I, and I told him why. I said, I can't help you do something that's illegal. You know that. You know me. And he said, well, no, it's not really illegal because there's this other thing involved that, that makes it okay. And I said, really? I need to see that. And if I, if I see that and you're right, sure, I'll help you. And it turns out it was a lie. And so then I had to get mad at him. You know, not that I wanted to, but it's like, now you're lying to me. How can I help you be better if you're going to lie. At this point in time, Jonathan, he does not like me. But he does respect me. We still talk. He understands where I'm coming from. And by God's grace, hopefully there will be lessons learned. But see, to me, that's a microcosm of God dealing with us. He lets us hurt. He lets us mess it up because he loves us so much he wants us to learn. Anyway, let's go a little further to understand. And, you know, what you said at the end of the last segment, does God sanction rape or abuse? And the answer is a resounding, not on your life. No way. No, of course not. But to understand the shocking and almost unreadable account that we're going to read, we first need to know this. God is moral. His morality is eternal, and he has used the human experience to teach it to us again. Yeah, okay, again, we've repeated this a second time. God is is moral. Now let's read this, this, this scripture that there are those who would accuse God. They, they, they point you to the scripture and says, God is, tell, is, is teaching rape in this scripture. Deuteronomy 21, 10 to 12. When you go out to battle against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take them away captive and see among the captives a beautiful woman and have a desire for her and would take her as a wife for yourself, then you shall bring her home to your house, and you shall shave her head and trim her nails. All right, so at, the, at face value, this is hideous. You kill a woman's family, you take her captive, you bring her home, you humiliate her, and then you marry her. It's like, what the heck? I mean, what kind of God is saying this? But you have to see the whole picture to understand, A, the way the world was, and B, the mercy of God in this. So let's read the next verses, Deuteronomy 21, 13 and 14. She shall also remove the clothes of her captivity and shall remain in your house and mourn her father and mother a full month. And after that, you may go in to her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. 
So, okay, it's not this horrible rape that they're accusing of. They're saying, well, first of all, you're giving respect to her to mourn the loss of her family. Okay, you say, yeah, well, big deal. She's alive. You killed her family. Yes, it was war. That's true. That's harsh. That's unsightly. Of course it is. That's what war is. That's what sin brings. And God allows those things to happen. Jonathan, there's a couple of comments here. Just read the first comment from Poole on this in terms of trying to explain what's being said here. To express her sorrow for the loss of her father and mother, as is follows in Deuteronomy, it's being the ancient custom of mourners in most nations to shave themselves and in some to pare their nails, in others to suffer them to grow. Okay, so th that's most likely why this is instructed the way it was, because that was the way you did the mourning in, in many, many nations. So what this is doing is this is having respect for that individual. And you say, yeah, well, yeah, she's still in your house and she's still a captive and you, you still killed your family. Yes, that's true. That was war in those times. But here's what happens next in the verses that helps us to put it in, in a much bigger, broader perspective. Verse uh, 14 of Deuteronomy 21. It shall be, if you are not pleased with her, then you shall let her go wherever she wishes. But you shall certainly not sell her for money. You shall not mistreat her because you have humbled her. So she becomes your wife. But if for some reason you, know, you don't like her, you can let her go. But she's not to be sold. She has human rights. And you cannot mistreat her. So was this rape? It, maybe today you look at that and say, well, she didn't say yes. So you can say, yeah, that would be rape in, in terms of today. But when you look at society back then, look at all societies back then, what you found, and folks, this is the, the, the unsightly truth of it, but it's true. Women had very few rights. Okay, R Women in many cases were very much second-class citizens. They followed the words and the commands and the wishes of their husbands. Within the Jewish uh, community, that was also the case. Interesting thing about that, you say, well, that's not fair. You're right, it's not. So why did God allow that? Because that was part of the penalty. Well, where does it say that? In the Garden of Eden. Remember Eve's part of the penalty is you shall obey your husband? That's part of what happened. That's part of the, of the undoing of the clarity and the beauty of life and going into the prison, of sin, prison house of sin and death. That's what you get for it. So as a result of the curse upon Eve, and as a result of these, these prison house rules, women were not treated in the same way as men. So here it speaks of taking someone as a wife, therefore with all the rights and respect of a, of a wife, but she's not a slave. This shows respect for the woman's life and experience. And again, we see a focus on the land and the people uh, a physical focus for a physical nation to show a physical example of the result of the curse. We're looking at today's mainstream and biblical topics from several different angles. We couldn't do it without you or our great supporters. Join our conversation by calling now. We're live and look forward to your call at 866-985-4255. So, Jonathan, it's really easy to look at a different time and a different culture and to say, Oh, that's awful, and that's terrible, because we don't live in that time or that culture. But what about people who today can get away with 
uh, dictating how others live and what others do. Do we say that's evil or do we say, no, that's the way it's supposed to be? Let me give you a for instance. And again, you know, I'm going to delve into an area that's very current uh, and I don't want to get into a conversation about it, but I think it, it, it makes sense. We have the debate on of gay marriage and all of these different types of lifestyles that are that are that have come to be and the idea that children are supposed to be raised now and you're not supposed to call them a boy or a girl they're a child because they get to decide whether they're a boy or a girl now for me from where I come from, from what I know, from the biology of men and women, from the hormones of men and women, from the physiology of men and women, a man is a man and a woman is a woman, and that's baloney to me. But when I say that in a public place, I will be excoriated, I will be pushed aside, I will be called a hater. But wait a minute. Isn't that the biology of the situation? Aren't men and women wired differently? Literally, folks, literally, our brains work differently. For goodness sakes, our bodies are different. Have you noticed? <laughs> My point is that we look back at that society and say, oh, look at how, 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 uh, how, how unbalanced they were. But look at how unbalanced we are. You know, in that, in that comment we read from the, the individual from Florida, she said something about, uh, or, or the other comment, the, the sarcastic one, children now get to make the choices. Where, on God's green earth, was that ever a smart thing? Never. And that's, you know, here's the thing. The, the, the sin, remember we're talking about the sin of the Amorites had not yet come to its full. It took four generations. We are in the first, maybe the second generation of, the, well, the first generation of this kind of thinking. Watch what happens in the second generation if we get there and the third generation if we get there. The complete unraveling and undoing of the very human fabric is, on, is, is, is out there. Breakdown of society. Absolutely unequivocally. And you say, well, how do you know that? Because it's sin. That's how I know that. Because it's sin. It only takes time. That's, that's really what, what we're looking at here. So you look at that back then and it's easy for us to judge a different society. But within that context of that woman being, being taken into that man's home, there was honor and respect given further than any other of the nations they were at war with. It was higher. It was better. It was, it was more equitable for that woman. And if she walked away, she walked away a free individual. So, you know, you can say, well, you know, God sanctioned rape. I don't think so. Not even close. Look at the society. Look at how it worked. Let's go to another soundbite, Jonathan, and it's going to bring up another situation, with, this time with a young lady who ends up losing her life because of a decision that her father makes. Let's listen to this. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? And he did to her. Since God is all-knowing, he knew Jephthah's daughter would be the one to walk out to meet her father. Yet even though God was supposedly against human sacrifice, he still carried out his end of the bargain by helping Jephthah defeat his enemies. Jephthah then fulfilled his part by making a burnt offering of his daughter. 
Okay, so what he's saying, he's trying to say God was in favor of human sacrifice there. Not. Not, not even remotely close. What God was in favor of is people doing what they say they're going to do. Allowing the sin to take its effect. Was that a smart choice on Jephthah's part? It was foolish. It was utterly foolish. But he made a vow to God. And the scriptures are very clear. When you make a vow to God, you do not break that vow. God. Now, did God get in his way when he killed his own daughter? No. Why? Because that's the price of sin. Sin costs life. It costs happiness. It costs goodness. And it, and it creates discontent and sorrow. That's what it does. And God is allowing that to rule day after day after day, generation after generation after generation. So did God sanction human sacrifice? No. Did he let it happen? Yes, he did. Rick, what about man's um, man's treatment of man? Uh, you know, people who would accuse God are so powerful in their statements that, well, you know, by the name of God, societies have been wiped out. That is true. Absolutely true. But let's look at it statistically, shall we? Let's look at it, and, and let's take a look at what godless dictators what they have done, godless dictators, not in the name of God, but in the name of mankind, they have been the biggest contributors of death, death, quote, by human decision in all of history. This is from Death in Wars and Conflicts in the 20th Century by Milton Leitenberg, Cornell University, Peace Studies Program. Uh, and this, Jonathan, is just a, a, a brief paragraph uh, highlighting human decision without God and the numbers that have been mercilessly slaughtered in godlessness. A beastly century. It was a phrase used by Margaret Drabble, a British novelist, in an address to the Royal Society of Literature in London on December 14, 2000. But of course it was no more than a human century. In 1994, the historian Eric Hobsbawm wrote that 187 million people were killed or allowed to die by human decision in what he called the short century, a period of about 75 years, from 1914 to 1991. Given that Hobsbawm is a Marxist historian, his choice of the category by human decision was particularly significant. However, the sum that he provided was low, by just about 44 million people for the full 20th century, during which approximately 231 million people died in wars and conflict in very large numbers by human decision. And most of those were dictators who did not have any sense or belief in God whatsoever, and they did it anyway. So those people who do not believe in God, who want to make God the big murderer need to come to grips with the fact that those without God are the greater murderers. Now look, murder in God's name is not good, it's not justifiable, I'm not even hinting at that. But this, Jonathan, this is those without God. And see, if you want to start to judge God, um, you, you need to have what we want to ask you if you're judging God is, what's your, what's your moral grounding? Without objective morality... What base do you have to, to make your observations on with God? Because this is objective. This is godlessness in action, and it is more murderous than anything you can find in all of the Bible. So think, think twice before you start pointing fingers like you said and play the blame game. No matter where or when anyone lives, 
The thing with God's eternal plan is everybody will be accountable. Romans 14, 11, and 12. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each of us will be accountable to God. So really what that comes down to is there is a level of accountability that is going to come to every single human who has ever lived. So that means whether they have uh, been, been taken off the scene uh, w- without consideration for their life or not, or they've decided, accountability will exist. And that's really, really good news. Not bad news, good news, because it's eternal God who's doing this. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Tonight's episode is, Why Do Some Think God is a Monster? Coming up, what is God's endgame? Will he just continue to use evil as a tool forever? That's next. listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Tonight's episode is, Why Do Some Think God is a Monster? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 10 Eastern. That means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-4ALL. Or you can message us on your app. Christian Questions, a voice of reason in a world that's lost its way. Keep in touch at ChristianQuestions.com. And you are so right. This world has so completely lost its way. And then we have the nerve to look at God and accuse God of being the evil one. When what we're doing is going further and further from basic sound moral principles. and, And we've destroyed it. And no wonder the world is falling apart. Because we have become more and more godless as time has gone on. Jonathan, another quick message, uh, email in from, from the website. This is no longer God's world. Satan took it over because of humanity's weakness and inexperience. God let us go down that road. Remember, a different road. He let us go down that road for the purpose of learning what it's like to live in Satan's world. And God shows his people how to navigate through this world to keep us from the evil in it. Why did he allow this? For contrast. So we can choose. Are we having fun yet? There's got to be a better way. There is. Coming right up. There is a better way because God's plan is going to be eternal. So, so to understand, again, the shocking and almost unreadable accounts in the Bible, we first need to know what? God's plan for humanity includes the destruction of evil from our world. He told us this in the Bible. So for those of you who want to accuse God of being evil, you better pay attention to this part. Because God is, going, is talking about the destruction of evil. But first, before we get into what God says, let's get into what man says. Let's go back to biblical evidence proving that God is evil. This is from the part two of that, uh, that YouTube video. Uh, and uh, again, just listen to the reasoning. Slaughtering animals, and especially humans, to gain the favor of gods is something people in civilized are barbaric, disgusting, and yes, even evil. Yet for some reason, despite the God of the Bible supposedly being all-powerful, he was unable to forgive his followers unless they killed and burned animals for him. Make an altar of earth for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. And... 
In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. And several times throughout Leviticus, it is a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Well, Rick, that sounds like Jesus' sacrifice, his blood shed to redeem all humanity. How perfect. Well, it is. It is. It is absolutely perfect. And uh, what we have to be able to do is look at that and see the, um, the power of what's being shown to us there. Uh, and it really is something of, uh, magnificent because it's a picture. The animal sacrifices were to remind us that justice needed to be met, a life for a life. That's what it was there for. That's exactly what it was there for. So we're going we're gonna to come back around to that point in just a few more minutes, but let's go to our next scripture. Our next example is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a famous one for you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and again, there's an overwhelming evidence of great evil. And if you notice, when these nations, these nations were de- destroyed, there's evidence of great, deep, dark, abiding evil in them. And Rick, there was not even ten righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah. Right, because Abraham was trying desperately, look, God, you know, look, if there's 40, if there's 50 righteous, will you save it? Sure. 40? Sure. 30? Sure. God, don't get mad at me, but what if there's 20? I mean, I mean, he's going through it. <laughs> but, and, and so, so, but here's the thing. People look at this and say, well, well, Lot, the righteous man, offered his daughters to the angry mob so they could rape his daughters. So, uh, and you're saying, well, and God sanctioned that? No, he didn't. That was Lot's own weakness. He, he, the, 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 the angels that had come to visit were obviously powerful enough to take care of themselves. Oh, yes. And they actually protected Lot's daughters. They blinded the individuals outside the door so they couldn't even find the door anymore. So Lot was weak. That's what it was. God wasn't saying, hey, yay, go Lot, oh, send them your daughters, yay. No, that was the weakness of a man who was afraid. Now, religioustolerance.org frames Sodom and Gomorrah as a murder based on a lack of hospitality or sexual preference. Further, Lot's wife is murdered for simply looking the wrong way. This was not just a lack of hospitality, Jonathan. There are other scriptures we won't get into right now that showed they were dark and evil in the way they lived. Let's look at just part of the account when they are fleeing, Lot and his family are fleeing in Genesis 19, 15 through 17, and 23 through 26. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or else you will be consumed in the punishment of the city. Flee for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the hills, or else you will be consumed. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities. And what grew on that ground? But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. So, you know, he's saying, well, they're they're saying, well, God murdered Lot's wife. Well, did, did God murder Lot's wife or did she get hit by the, this was most likely a volcanic eruption. And, you know, the stuff shot way up into the sky and then, and then came down and she got hit by molten rock and, and that was the end of it. Now, you say, well, did God aim it at her? She was in the line of fire because it says she was lagging behind and looked back. And what that indicates is she didn't want to leave, which indicates 
that when these angels protected Lot's family and told them of the coming destruction, she didn't want them to be right. So, again, do you say, well, was she judged for, um, for, for not obeying? Yeah, she was. Absolutely. Because she was warned, if you don't flee and if you don't just keep looking forward, it's going to catch up with you. Because that's how deep and complete this destruction was. So you look at that and say, all right, so Sodom and Gomorrah, Gomorrah are wiped out. I mean, totally, completely, utterly wiped out. And it says in the scripture there are not even ten righteous therein. Now, there were probably children there, and you can argue, well, well, what about the children? And yes, that's a point. What about the children? They suffered as well. What do you do with that? Well, Rick, maybe in their case, they were so evil that even the resurrection won't help them. <laughs> well, you know, here's the interesting thing about that. Here's the interesting thing about that. This was not a final judgment on them. This was something that they were going to be able to come back from. Now, how do we know that? What right do we have to say, but wait, Sodom and Gomorrah were totally destroyed, you know, and it looks like, if you want to paint a picture of the wrath of God, fire from heaven is a pretty good way to do it. (laughs) And you could say that, you know, this wrath of God has got to be the final powerful judgment. It was a judgment, and it was powerful, but it wasn't final. Now, how do we know? Because Jesus told us that it wasn't final. And folks, you got to hear this because, Jonathan, we started out this segment talking about God's plan for humanity includes the destruction of evil from our world. That's right. And we have been talking about the continual theme of the resurrection and humankind coming back with an opportunity for life. How do you fit those together with Sodom and Gomorrah? You look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 23 and 24. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the deeds of power done in you had it been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom than for you. Okay, so a couple of things. First of all, it's, it talks about Hades. And Rick, we know in the, the Greek it means the grave or pit. It right. doesn't mean hell, fire, and torment. Right, right. You know, you, you think about Hades, and a lot of times you think of the, of the Greek uh, mythology of Hades and the underworld. Well, it's close because it's under the ground, but that's, right. what, that's what the word actually means. It's, it's under, under the ground. But, but here's the point. It says uh, Capernaum. Capernaum was a city that Jesus preached in. He did miracles in Capernaum. And they rejected him outright even with the miracles right. before them. And look, there was, no, there was no dastardly deeds. There was no questionable activity. I mean, he's helping blind people to see and lame people to walk, and he's doing wonderful things and teaching wonderful lessons. And so you have all of this, and they outright reject him. And his response to them was, look, if Sodom had been visited by me, Jesus... And I had done the things I've done for you, I had done them in Sodom, they would not have met with destruction. They would have seen God's goodness and God's glory in what I have done here. And he said, it will be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. In Capernaum. So that means both of those cities are going to be there. 
in the resurrection. And the people of Sodom who were destroyed in the midst of their evil will have a better time of it than the people of Capernaum who watched Jesus and said, no, that's a bunch of baloney, I'm walking away from it. So it gives you a sense that, wait a minute, there's more to it than this present world. There's more to it than this present, these present judgments that we want to accuse God of. Because we accuse God and we accuse him as though it's the final thing. God let that Jephthah's daughter die. Shame on him. No, it's not the final thing. He didn't interfere with free choice, did he? And that, of everything that we've said, Jonathan, I think that's the key to this whole thing. God does not interfere with our free choice. He wants our free choice to produce whatever it is that it's going to produce. So we can see the end result and say, oh, that's not so good. Unless our free choice is angled toward God's righteousness. Not toward feeling right, not toward doing what I think is right, but toward God's listed out righteousness that we have in following Jesus. God, through Jesus, truly does have a plan, spoken of in ancient times and carried out through the ages of history. He began humanity in an environment for success. Remember in the Garden of Eden, that was an environment designed for success. He will bring humanity back to that environment. Only now, with the incalculable understanding of the depth of evil and sin. And that's the wisdom of God's plan. It's let the evil happen so everybody can learn from it. And you know the beauty of this, Jonathan, is the evil that was done in those days, people in, today, in today's world will be able to learn from in the resurrection. That's right. The evil done in today's world, the people of ancient times will be able to learn from in the resurrection. You're right. It's the collective experience of thousands of years of evil in every conceivable possible form. And we can all look at it and say, not going there. Oh. And I love the, the ingredient of the knowledge uh, increasing over generations. Right. Uh, with all this technology and everything, we still sin. We still use that technology for evil more than good. No matter what we're given, right. it doesn't matter. Right, and we've got technology that can re literally solve many of the world's ills, but it will never be focused in this world on solving the world's ills because ego and pride and greed and darkness always get in the way. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 8 through 11. This is a wonderful prophecy of Jesus and the end result of all of this happening that we're, we're talking about here. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go, and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Okay, so if we if we pause there for a moment, it's like it's a prophecy and it's God is saying to Isaiah, who's going to go? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. I'll go. But this is a picture of Jesus. This is a picture of Jesus coming to earth and that's why he spoke in parables, so that they seeing they would see and not under, hear, seeing they would see and not perceive, hearing they would hear and not understand lest they be converted. He so fulfilled this prophecy. He absolutely word for word fulfilled this prophecy. So what has to happen? Evil has to come to its full form. God allows it to happen. 
And that's what verse 11 and, uh, is, is about to tell us. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. So, Jonathan, when you think about it, other prophecies talk about a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. And it talks about a lot of destruction and a lot of evil, all reigning and running and ruling all over this world. That's what this is hinting at. This is telling us that, you know, this is going to go on until evil has run its course to the point where humankind is on the death spiral of self-destruction. Once you're in that death spiral of self-destruction, you cannot stop. The only thing that stops it is the mercy of God. And God's eternal plan says, I'm not going to let that keep going. I am going to interfere with that at that point and turn the death spiral of sin into a life spiral up of righteousness through resurrection. So we see thus far that the strict justice approach did not in any way finish the work of reconciling the physical creation of man to God. That was in the Old Testament. On the other hand, it only served to identify sin and how far the sinful race of man was away from God. More would need to be done, much more, for this was just the beginning. The Old Testament is the foundation of the work of God towards his creation. The New Testament builds on that foundation, and it gets us closer. But Jonathan, there's much more to it. We keep saying God's got this eternal plan, and it's good, and he's going to destroy evil. Let's just touch on, because we only got like a, a minute left or so. Let's just touch on two lines from two different prophecies that give us a beautiful picture. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Never have we seen a world that looks like that. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. The world, the earth is going to be covered with the knowledge of God like the waters cover the sea. And you think about that and you think, wait, that's not happening now. No, it's not, because it's not yet time. But this is what God promises will happen. This is the character of God shining through. Next one. So shall my word go that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. See, God, when he speaks a prophecy, he means it. And we look at these prophecies and we see that there's goodness and greatness in them. But we don't see them being fulfilled before our eyes right now. What we see is the, the effects, the sadness, the, the degradation of sin because we're in that prison house of sin and death. And the rules are terrible in the prison house of sin and death. There's no fairness. There's no justice. There's no mercy. But there will come a time when sin has run its full course because Jesus gave his life and God will say, that's enough. Now, let us raise man from the dead, every one of them. Let us give them an opportunity to see me, to see God as he is, so they can come to him and make the choice for righteousness. That is the character of God. For Jonathan and Rick in Christian Questions, we hope you've enjoyed being with us tonight. God certainly is not a monster. He is benevolent, and praise him for that. We'll be back again next week with another subject. But till then, God is gracious and his plan is great. Think about it. Hi, this is Rick, and I need to address an error and some poor judgment on my part relating to our December 12, 2016 broadcast, Why Do Some Think God is a Monster? 
During this podcast, we covered several very harsh scriptures that seem to show God as a bloodthirsty and heartless being. Going over scriptures like this is never easy or comfortable, and I, specifically, am always searching for the best ways to address the issues that they present. One of the scriptural accounts we touched on via a soundbite was the account of Jephthah found in the book of Judges. The accusation in the soundbite was that Jephthah sacrificed his own daughter as a burnt offering to God in exchange for victory in battle, and God was accepting of it. This is a difficult text and can be understood two very different ways. In my commentary after the soundbite, I addressed the text and accusation from the standpoint of the harshest way to interpret the text. After hearing feedback from my valued CQ team members, I need to correct my comments. While what I said about this scripture's implication of Jephthah actually sacrificing his daughter is one way of viewing the text, it is clearly not the best scriptural way of understanding what actually happened. Let's take a moment and look. Reading from Judges 11, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you indeed will give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be yours and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. She was now his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. This does sound ominous. Notice how the vow is made by Jephthah. Offer it up as a burnt offering. Further in Judges, so she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. She said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months, that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. Several commentators note that this request of Jephthah's daughter actually explains what was to happen. They note that for women in Israel, to have a family was the crowning accomplishment of their lives. Jephthah's daughter's life was to be offered to God. It was to be put in service of God only, and that would forfeit her rights to a family. You see, her life offered up as a burnt offering, meaning with the same result as a burnt offering, signified that there could be no returning from the commitment, that she had no possibility of a family, ever. She accepted this and went to mourn the loss for two months. Jephthah then said, Go. So he sent her away for two months, and she left with her companions and went on to the mountains because of her virginity. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did according to her to the vow which he had made, and she had no relations with a man. Thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah four days in the year. The end of the account is actually showing what happened as a result of the vow. No human sacrifice at all. Rather, she never had a husband or a family, and the daughters of Israel had great respect for her devotion as a result. So you see, by reading the context of the text, a rule of my own which I did not take the time to follow, the more clear understanding is easily revealed. Please accept my apology for my own short-sightedness in dealing with this particular story, as I am truly sorry for incompletely representing the character of Jephthah, and by extension, the character of God. Thanks for listening.